this movie had Easter eggs before Marvel even dreamed about it. <laughs> Welcome to episode of Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. This month, we are discussing the genre known as movie musicals. And this genre has had several ups and downs throughout the years, but it's been with us. It's been with us for almost 100 years now. And today, we're talking about a movie that definitely pushes the genre and the form in new ways. But before we dive into that film today... Thomas, can you give us a little bit of a recap of what we talked about last week in our West Side Story episode? Yeah, so in covering West Side Story, we kind of talked about movie musicals and the way that they evolved as just film, film stage musicals and, and the way that movies like West Side Story were able to come in and create a synthesis of filmmaking and musical production especially West Side Story is such an interesting example because it was directed by a stage choreographer in partnership with a film director. So it truly represents this like meeting of of the minds as far as thinking from the point of view of a camera versus thinking from the point of view of a proscenium and and how to block for both of those things. Um, We also talked a little bit about the influence of that film on on future musicals and film as a whole, uh, especially because of its influence on Steven Spielberg, who you can then say went on to influence an insane amount of people under underneath him. The the tree goes on and on Mm -hmm. and on. And yeah, we talked about like and specifically in terms of like when to do a musical, like like how can we make this a movie and not just a tape version of. Uh, of the the musical and and today i mean this is interesting because we're we're combining it's we're, we're it's a jukebox musical is what you're doing today where it's it's taking a bunch of songs that are from another medium or from elsewhere and are putting it into a cohesive or in some critics perspectives may incohesive story um <laughs> but i think a cohesive story with across the universe today and and jukebox musicals are definitely a type of musical and i don't mean how many i mean do you think we'll maybe we'll discuss this as we get into the show but like are jukebox musicals that successful when it comes to movies it's tough yeah well this is an interesting subject to tackle because uh the director of this film herself says it's not a jukebox musical so um wow so okay know, then maybe we can we can we can flesh that out later yeah because right, right out of the gate i'm disagreeing <laughs> <laughs> but we'll we'll dive into that so yeah today's movie is across the universe and it was thomas's pick so thomas why did you why did you pick this film i i was obsessed with this movie this came out uh when i was i, I believe a freshman in college or i mean in high school um, what? Yeah, freshman in high school, and I was about a year into my Beatles phase, which I feel like every teenager has one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was a year or two into it, and uh, yep. and this just felt like perfect timing. My friends and I like all went to see it. We saw it twice in theaters. I had the soundtrack. Oh, wow. I bought the um, I bought the first soundtrack that came out, and was dismayed to find out that that soundtrack did not have all the songs on it. So then I had to buy the deluxe edition soundtrack. That was a, uh, was a best buy exclusive for a little while. So, uh, 
definitely consumed a lot of this film bought the dvd as soon as it came out watched it a hundred times made my parents watched it they tell me they told me it didn't make any sense uh which is something we can talk about today but um and and then kind of put it on a shelf and forgot about it for a long time until it will and we'll talk about this today it was brought back uh, about a year and a half ago for a 4k restoration and, and theater release and saw a lot of buzz kind of building up around it and realized that it had become kind of this this cult film and that a lot of other people especially people who were my age when this movie came out feel very very strongly about it and have have very great memories about it so it's been it's been really fun to revisit it i hadn't revisited it probably since high school and Mm -hmm. so it's been really cool to come back to it and see what held up what doesn't hold up what sticks out to me now as i'm looking at it from a more critical eye and which pieces of it just like you know bring back that nostalgia in me where i can't even look at it critically at this point yeah, you know yeah no i understand that yeah it's it's a. Uh, I mean this movie i don't want to, i mean i'll tip my hand a little bit i think it's a flawed film to <laughs> some extent um but an interesting film nonetheless. Yeah, it was for me. I don't think I saw it in its initial run. I know I didn't see it in theaters. I think it was why I remember the trailers for a lot. I think uh, I was just getting into my Beatles phase. And with me, it's like uh, this was uh, a very much like uh, songs, not albums, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because there wasn't, I mean, you had to I would either download songs or whatever. I didn't buy the CDs, the albums of the, of the Beatles or uh across the universe somewhere that i would download i downloaded a few songs uh legally uh from uh <laughs> across front for, for for this album um yeah it was it's it's a side thing when you brought up you said it was a best buy exclusive isn't it funny how nowadays we have these streamings and everything's exclusive to a certain thing and we were doing that 15 years ago but in the <laughs> physical media format it was Garth the blockbuster Brooks, only exclusive. at walmart remember yeah, that yeah yeah walmart exclusive target exclusive blockbuster exclusive with school for scoundrels starring john heater and billy bob <laughs> thornton uh <laughs> 1408 um yeah it's so but but no yeah so this movie it's like one i agree when i think of this movie it it feels like a millennial cult classic in a way Mm -hmm. because i know a lot of people my age like you said that love this movie i think when i did like a uh, months back when i was on my instagram and i was like question of the day i think i asked favorite music favorite movie musical and this was one that popped up uh, a good bit and i think it's it's that blend of the beatles music and and i think some in some cases a lot of people were introduced to beatles music through this movie um and it, it weirdly, besides like, I don't want to step on anyone's toe or or or, or uh, t- tear anyone down this movie, but like, it's very much of its time because like, not really a lot of people got famous f- after this film besides like Evan Rachel Wood and kind of Jim Sturgis. Like yeah. everyone else kind of stayed in their own. Like a lot of these people are singers. I remember so they kind of stayed in that world and didn't transition into more films. Um that's my history with that movie. Uh, but let's let's dive into it. So, Thomas, can you tell me what Across the Universe is is and what it's about? Yeah. So, Across the Universe is a 2007 film currently available to stream on Hulu. And yeah. So, Across the Universe uses over 30 songs from the Beatles uh, catalog to tell the story of a group of friends living together in New York in the turbulence of the late 1960s. It stars 
uh, Jim Sturgis as Jude, a dock worker from Liverpool who has come to America to find his long-lost father. Evan Rachel Wood as Lucy, a straight-laced suburban girl driven to protest after losing her boyfriend in Vietnam. Joe Anderson as Max, Lucy's older brother and Princeton dropout who befriends Jude and moves the group to New York. Uh, Dana Fuchs and Martin Luther McCoy as Janice Joplin and Jimi Hendrix-esque roommates uh, Sadie and Jojo. <laughs> And TV Carpio is Prudence, a Midwestern runaway struggling to come out of the closet. And uh, it's written and directed by, well, directed and story by credit yeah. to uh, legendary stage director Julie Taymor. We'll talk a little bit more in a moment about her uh, bona fides. And written by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, who were very successful british sitcom writers yeah i, I saw he wrote like wrote porridge is what it was and that was mm-hmm. said in one of the uh in one of the reviews yeah interesting screenwriting duo for this movie i will say a lot a lot of sitcoms um yeah. throughout the years starting in the in the mid 70s and up until they rebooted porridge recently apparently so we already talked a little bit about your history with it brandon but what are your initial thoughts upon revisiting across the universe this time around yeah I, I, this part i didn't mention so like, i re, so i watched a good bit after i think i bought it from like a movie gallery as i here's the thing there's a lot of movies in my collection that i still own that i bought when video stores closed down in my town so i'm pretty sure this was one of them um and so it was one i watched a lot in college and i remember always liking and then i revisited it pre the this new release in 2017 in my short-lived medium series of uh 10 years later now just called a look back where i went back and looked at the films that came out 10 years before and seeing how they aged and then what the effect they had on kind of the industry and across the universe was one that it didn't it was the one where like my my view of it went down over time um and so I saw, as you kind of were saying, I, I started to see kind of stuff that didn't work as well, but stuff that I thought did still help hold up and stuff that you just kind of like, well, I really like this song. It might not work for the film, but I really like this <laughs> this kind of sequence. Um, so, yeah. And so kind of when when revisiting it this time, I, I, I was left with a similar uh, feeling, a little bit more uh, aware of why I have the feelings I have for it. So we'll, we'll discuss that more as we go into it, but that's kind of where I'm at, but I haven't seen it in five years until today. First time seeing Evan Rachel Wood, I think too, possibly, or knowingly saw her. Speaking of blockbuster exclusives, I think the, is it called the King of California? She did, she did a movie with, uh, Michael Douglas, like two years before this. And I definitely rented that from (laughs) blockbuster at some point. Oh, it's the same year. Same year. The one she did, I definitely saw the one she did with the kid from Seventh Heaven. Something about secrets. Michael Angarano was in it. Secrets, secrets. Little secrets. Yeah. 2001. Rented that from Blockbuster, too. Oh, I remember this one. Yeah. I remember this cover. I don't know if I watched this, but I definitely remember this cover somewhere at a video (laughs) store. Well, a little bit of how this got made. It started with a pitch from uh, Clement and Lafrenet, uh, and their idea was to tell the story of three kids, Max, the aimless dropout forced into the Vietnam War, Lucy, the radical protester, 
and Jude, the tortured artist, in love with her using the music of the Beatles. Tamor, a near legendary theater director after the immeasurable success of The Lion King. Uh, little side note here, The Lion King can be classified as the most successful entertainment in the history of entertainment. Wow. Boasting a gross of over $8 billion in box office re- revenue. This is the this is just the musical or you mean just, the franchise just the, Lion the Broadway King? musical for The Lion King. Now, is that including just on in New York or is that the entire the, like, the tour, tour, including the tour? OK, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. That makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and she also had two two films under her belt at this point. Uh, the Shakespearean adaptation Titus and the uh, Oscar winning film Frida. She uh, she came on board with the film and collaborated on very large changes to the script. According to Tamor, um, Clement and Frenet only had a loose idea of what Beatles songs they wanted to use. And it was Tamor who perused the entire Beatles catalog and found and found the 33 songs that ended up informing the story. Uh, she says that the most important aspect of her initial vision was that it was to not be a jukebox musical. She said in, in a jukebox musical, the songs often don't push the story along and she said with this that is fair with this film she wanted these songs to function as the, the thoughts and feelings of the character within the world of this movie the beatles weren't going to exist so the songs that were being presented to us were the inner monologues or outer monologues of the of the characters at the time fair <laughs> but still uh, uh go ahead. We'll, we'll talk about more yeah it's semantics yeah (laughs) she uh she also insisted on adding some other viewpoints in the script saying that part of the charm of the beatles was that they were so often able to write songs that felt like they could be from anyone's point of view she especially wanted to introduce more voices to honor both the r&b music that so heavily inspired the beatles and the rock and roll scene that was going on in america after the british invasion towards the, the later end of the 60s which led to the creation of the Jojo and Sadie characters mirroring, mirroring both Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and also the very heavy American music influences on the Beatles that came from R&B, soul, blues, um, the, all of those genres. Tamor's life partner, uh, composer Elliot Goldenthal and T-Bone Burnett, legendary composer and songwriter at this point uh began collaborating on the arrangements of some of the beatles most popular songs uh tamor says it was always their intention to create unique takes with their arrangements uh one of the most deliberate examples of this choice was to avoid guitars as much as possible often using lush orchestral arrangements and even very unique instruments to evoke the feelings of some of the beatles more distinctive guitar riffs while creating a more epic musical sound with a large orchestra Mm -hmm. next up which was very important to this film was the casting process yeah uh tamor says she knew at this point in the film industry that the hot young actors of the time just weren't interested in doing a musical (laughs) she keeps saying in interviews uh a lot of interviews she's done she did to lead up to the 4k restoration of this film she kept saying like this was before la la land the hot people weren't doing musicals at this point so she knew they were gonna have to hold some open calls and and find some unknown actors um 
She brought on legendary Broadway casting director Bernie Telsey and his associate at the time, now his partner, Tiffany Little Canfield, uh, to hold huge casting calls across America and England. Really, the only person with any sort of name to come into the cast, like we said, was uh, Evan Rachel Wood, who was mm-hmm. 17 years old when she was first offered the part. Wow. She had been a child actor in film and television. She had made waves breaking into the indie scene as the rebellious teen in Catherine Hardwick's 13. But as Tamor saw it, she said this was still Evan Rachel Wood was was still an unknown headed into this film because a no one had seen her play an adult and b no one had heard her sing yet. No one even knew she could sing. So she she counts this as her debut role in a, in a new sense as well. Yeah. The uh, the search for Jude was even more intense, eventually landing with Londoner Jim Sturgis, who had had a few TV roles, not many, but was primarily spending his time singing in a rock band. Uh, Tamor said she was most charmed by his singing voice. It struck her most because it felt like an extension of him. She said in too many musicals, the actor's singing voice, when they launch into it, sounds nothing like their speaking voice. And the, the fact that Sturgis is speaking and singing went back and forth so seamlessly was was what immediately caught her attention it's side thing it's interesting how like that will be a reoccurring theme in lies like especially modern musicals of the i guess the artifice of singing and talking is what really gets with like filmmakers nowadays and mm-hmm. that's like you get les mis and all that i, I want it to sound real yeah. so anyway that's just that reminds me of that yeah uh continuing on in the casting joe anderson had a few film credits to his name and was brought in on his acting chops alone to audition nobody knew if he could sing he had never sung before but uh he came in and and gave him a little little audition and uh they they were really impressed with with kind of his raw vocal talents the the vocal producer for the film um tessie goal described anderson's raw vocal talents as a mustang entered in a horse race he can keep up with the others. You just have to make sure you point him in the right direction. Uh, Dana Fuchs, who plays the role of Sadie, um, was was actually the only sure thing in the movie because Julie Taymor had written the role for her. Wow. Uh, she had played Janis Joplin in an off-Broadway show about Joplin's life. And so when Taymor decided they needed a, a Joplin-type character in the film, she already she already knew who she wanted. Meanwhile, Martin Luther McCoy, who played Jojo, had never acted before. He was a recording artist who was a major part of the neo-soul scene in the late 90s, which uh, is a movement that is perhaps now best known as the origin of the of the roots. Mm-hmm. And then TV Carpio had a extremely varied career leading up to her casting as Prudence. Uh, she started as a semi-professional ice skater before becoming a pop dancer touring with groups including NSYNC, and then landed a role in Rent on Broadway before being cast as Prudence. Wow. And once they were all cast, the the cast was brought to New York for intensive vocal rehearsals and choreography sessions. Uh, Most of their vocal tracks were recorded ahead of time, although Tamor fully intended to record live on set for the the final vocal performances. The pre-recorded tracks were only back up if something went wrong with the audio. Tamor likes to say that even though Moulin Rouge was technically the only film to use a live singing method before Across the Universe came along, she was the one who told Baz Luhrmann that he should try that. So she likes to claim credit for it, even if someone else technically (laughs) did it before her. 
And uh, Evan Rachel Wood says she didn't even realize they would be singing live on set from what she knew of them, of movie musicals. You go in the recording booth, you record the track, then you and show up it. and you lip sing. And um, and so she showed up for her first day on set and was expected to perform If I Fell uh, live for the camera. <laughs> Probably the most integral song of her entire character yeah. <laughs> for the movie. Very intimate very difficult and one of the most memorable songs in the film by the Mm -hmm. way well speaking of that let's uh let's dive into some favorite scenes yeah so favorite scenes i really love like the first half of this film (laughs) like i think all the songs are really hitting i think all the character intros are really hitting but i'll try to be specific here um yeah i love the i love kind of the intro with like of of like of lucy and jude and it's the it's the hold me tight um mm, kind of middle america so versus yeah versus mod, working uh, class england at the time dodgy dodgy liverpool mm-hmm. uh it's like it's it's very like and and also kind of like yeah you said like kind of the the upper class like prom is what it is and that's the like underbelly clubs which is very much what the beatles played in um when they were Go, grow, uh, uh, climbing up the ranks in Liverpool and in kind of Europe. Um, so I love that kind of dynamic that it has. It's a good, again, I've talked about this, the musicals here this month and we'll continue to talk about is how like that opening song is kind of there to set up the world. Mm-hmm. And even though like there's two songs technically before this with Helter Skelter and girl, I think hold me tight is the song that like, here is the intro to our world and what is happening and then everything's going to get screwed up later yeah exactly and this does that well every song after that is going to be like here is us introducing every character like the first 35 minutes of the movie is kind of introducing each character um yeah and that's a great little sequence as well too because it it, you know since it's not a jukebox musical since it's not telling the story of the beatles in that sense they're not held to you know chronological order of the music but it does work in in this sense to kind of have the more innocent poppy love songs of the early Beatles to set up this this more innocent world before these characters kind of grow up and their eyes are open to to mm-hmm. what's going on around them yeah that's uh, and and that might be why I like the first half a little bit more is because it kind of I mean I don't want to tip my hand with some of the stuff too early but no I think it, it I feel like the songs now i like some of the songs in the latter half but i feel like a lot of the songs in the first half just really hit with what is going on with the characters with their mindset with the world around them 
and just a great i mean to go into great introduction i think one of my favorite songs uh is easily i want to hold your hand by mm-hmm. uh tv uh carpio uh as prudence because to go with what you're saying about tamor is that they really changed the meaning of i want to hold your hand yep in this in this movie and i think it's done beautifully i think the the orchestration i think that the arrangement's great i think the the meaning it's like it's like and ebert talked about in his review of how like, it changes the meaning of the song is that in beatles beatles world it's the like it's i'm in love and i want to hold your hand and we're like we're going off and, and living together and being and being being uh just like kind of puppy dog love in a way but tamor and them switch the meaning and it's the longing for love it's mm-hmm. the not having it and knowing i never will have it with this person and it's me longing to i want to hold your hand oh please Say to me, you'll let me be your man. And please say to me, you'll let me hold your hand. Now let me hold your hand. I want to hold. That sequence, I think, is really great, and that's why I think that that those fir- that first half hour to hour, I feel like every song's really hitting mm-hmm. with the world and the characters. No, and I I think the the song that kind of ends that sequence or that that period of kind of blissful childhood years is is the Let It Be sequence, which is the one that always that always gets me. I think it's yeah incredibly well done well edited the arrangement is gorgeous it's turned into mm-hmm. a kind of a southern gospel arrangement mm-hmm. and and that's when you you meet jojo kind of without even realizing that I, I, I like the way that sequence is done you're, you're not really sure as you're going through it you're introduced to this young boy who is kind of hunkered down in the middle of the detroit race riots and is like singing this almost as like a prayer and then you you realize that he he was killed in the riots and and you're at his funeral and it's being sung by this gospel choir behind him and that's where you meet jojo and you're not even really sure at that point that jojo is going to become a character and and meanwhile it's being intercut with lucy realizing that her boyfriend was killed in vietnam yeah and it's it's his funeral it's his funeral you're coming back from so yeah it's really is like the the loss of innocence in a way is kind of that period mm-hmm. where it begins to start. I guess. Yeah. You say. And it's, I think it's re- from a storytelling perspective as well. It's because Jude and Jude and Max aren't involved in this and, and they're two that are going to continue to kind of struggle with grasping the weight of the world that everyone else around them is feeling for a while. Max, not until, he's drafted jude not even beyond that that's something that's going to continue to be kind of like a but you know a, a conflict between him and him and lucy is that he can't completely understand what everyone else is feeling so i don't yeah. know i like that they introduce jojo into that sequence and the yeah that's one of those where the arrangement is incredible and we get these these two vocalists who we don't see again in the film but they just like absolutely nail that song and when the night is cloudy There is still a light that shines on me 
shine until tomorrow let it be And then I'll, because it goes off that and then it goes into Come Together with a cameo by Joe Cocker, yeah. which I also loved. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's a good kind of, again, that run of songs, I really think those, that run of songs really does work. Mm-hmm. I just in the face, I think it's a great sequence they do at the bowling alley. Like it all, as we're saying, kind of showcases the change, uh, changing the times with entering our, our, uh, putting in the Vietnam war and putting in kind of the race issues of the time and the music's doing that very well. Well, and speaking of Joe Cocker, I think one of the best arrangement uh, creative choices made in this movie is, is how the way that they do with a little help from my friends, the sequence Mm -hmm. where we're kind of Max is showing Jude how they party at Princeton. But as, as they as the night goes on and they get drunker and more raucous the the arrangement turns from the Beatles version into Joe the Joe Cocker version by the end mm-hmm. of it they're all drunk buffoons stumbling around <laughs> to the Joe Cocker version I, I, I love that arrangement yeah and I like I mean again I like the kind of hangout scene to kind of skip ahead a little bit the hangout scene of like uh not seen as in one scene but like as the scene as a whole of like all these friends just hanging out in New York and like uh 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 max is like a ta- as a cab driver and uh all of a sudden lucy moves there to be with them and they're kind of going out to the parties and they're hanging out and seeing sadie and jojo play together and they're like going to like diners together and they're living they're all living together in greenwich village and how just like uh prudence just comes how these all characters fall into each other's lives mm-hmm. i think that's handled very well and kind of rep- it kind of like uh it definitely replicates what real life can be like yeah. where it's like you meet this person and then your circle grows larger as you introduce new friends into it. And sometimes it's just by happenstance that this person that becomes very important in your life. Just she comes into the bathroom window. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think it works very well. Yeah. I, you know what, now that you bring it up, I wouldn't think that I would bring up a dialogue scene in this musical there's only 30 minutes of dialogue in the whole musical i read that that's insane but for um, a two two hour and 15 minute movie 30 minutes of dialogue <laughs> but i kind of love the scene at the diner when they're talking about the draft card yes so do i it's a lot of fun and they're talking about all the different ways you can get out of the draft and and then max just lights it on fire and they've got that great shot of jojo because jojo's the only one there that served and he like looks him down and he's like you can burn that card but you still got a show yeah and it's like and yeah it's and it's like it's like shot kind of through it looks like it's shot through the uh, the fire's kind of over jojo's face in a way mm-hmm. and the or the card is and the sl- the fire's slowly burning it away and you're beginning to see more and more jojo face as like the smoke's rising up as he's saying it's a very ominous little ominous moment in the middle of that where it's like yeah you can't get you can't you can't run away from this. You're going to have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're going to have to make an effort in some other way of drinking beet juice or whatever he has to do uh, to get out of, but yeah, get out of the draft board. But yeah, I think that scene, that's the scene where I think it really, you see as a head is like the, like the, the, the friend scenes basically. Um, and how at that point you see how close they've all become just by living in the same 
place together or, be, or hanging out and being friends together. I think that really works. I remember this one cat, he ate a ton of beets the night before the physical. It looks like blood when you piss. Oh, I hate beets. Can we get the check, please? You know, man, it... What is with these perks? Oh, calm down, Matt. My mate's brother swallowed a ball of cotton to get out of the army. Huh? Well, what the hell does that do? Uh, it shows up as like a, a shadow on the x-ray. Track marks. They ain't gonna take a junkie, man. You want him to shoot up? Of course I don't want him to shoot up. He could just jab around with a needle. Oh, it's a felon. Make it a rusty needle. Then it'll get infected. Yeah. 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 Oh, man, Max. What are you doing? You could burn that paper, boy. But you still got a show. Yeah, so we, we've covered the first half. So as things start to <laughs> spiral out of control for the characters a little bit more, the uh, the visuals, the songs, everything gets a uh-huh. little, a little uh, trippier. Yeah, so and I, I like Bono's song because Bono pops up in this and does the I Am The Walrus as Dr. Robert, which is a which is also a, is a song, is a yes. Beatles song, a mm-hmm. lesser known Beatles song. Pretty much anyone um, who's pretty much anyone who has a name in this movie is named after a Beatles song. We're not going to yeah. cover that all in in trivia. This this movie had this movie had Easter eggs before Marvel even dreamed about it. <laughs> a year before it was a thing. Um, yeah, I don't. I I've always not always felt this way, but I remember I watched it about five years ago when it gets to the sequence at Mister Kite's place. That's where it just kind of slows down for me. Like that's the big like point where like like if you had to pick a point where like everything's changing in the movie visually specifically but also just tone and all that stuff it's right there and then it just becomes we're doing more of this now well and it's it's so funny because that's the like the mr kite sequence is the part that feels the most julie taymor i i agree with you i agree with you on that with the with the with the huge puppets and the and the makeup and just the kind of the scale of it. Yeah, maybe it's uh, maybe it's just uh, it feels like it's such a drastic change so quickly. Is yeah, why they, it always kind of turns the acid. me on. They drink the magic they drink punch. The acid. I I know. <laughs> and then it's like, and they can't go back because the rest of the movie's kind of not fully like that, but it definitely like is in that realm. Of, the minds have been open, bro. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I but I think I don't know if it's because after that it feels like most of the songs aren't landing emotionally like the other ones are like the other ones are very like, and we're talking about songs of like the, as, as, as Tamor was saying with like the meaning and the end, the outer monologue of the character. And I feel like a lot of the songs, not all of them, I will say, but a lot of the songs in the back half don't feel as strong in terms of like capturing that out, that inner slash outer Hmm. monologue. Maybe I'm wrong. I think one that does it well is while my guitar gently weeps. Oh, that's and, yeah. Martin Luther McCoy on that, that, that arrangement too is, is it's a beautiful song. They, they, you know, George Harrison wrote that song as, as like a blues song and, and they yeah. make it like a real blues song and yeah. it's fantastic, but that's a great, but that's again, that, that kind of captures the, again, uh, as Jojo, it's basically, it's right after Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated like april 4th 1968 and it's like that's his reaction to it that's mm-hmm. the world we're in now is that he's gently weep or he's weeping uh from king's death and i think that captures it beautifully it's but almost just feels like and maybe it's like here's the thing maybe it's that i want some dialogue in between some of these scenes mm. 
because when it finally does have dialogue, the one I think of is uh, when, oh gosh, when uh, Lucy is talking to her mom on the phone, Mm -hmm. it almost feels jarring because we haven't had it in a while. Yeah, I can see that. It It feels like to me. I do I do like the scene between the two of them at the um at the laundromat when it yes, just finally I agree with you. when it finally I'm talking about of, Paco yeah when it comes to a head yeah completely Logan completely Marshall forgot Green. my boy Logan Marshall Green was in this movie <laughs> I saw this I was like oh Thomas is gonna be excited to see him hell yeah <laughs> I don't it's just it feels like that last half feels more like a hodgepodge of songs to me the last the last half has the first half has like no misses exactly the last half has some really really great sequences but it's also Mm -hmm. got some real misses because i love i love the oh darling yep the way that they they kind of stage oh darling to be this like yeah between sadie and jojo battle yeah um i i love hey jude um mm-hmm. i love joe anderson doing hey jude i actually really like joe anderson doing happiness is a warm gun and it's it's an interesting interpretation of it um because that that's one of those songs that was kind of written with based on a bunch of things that john lennon went through this period of like reading things in newspapers and just like yep. writing yep. songs off of like 20 different headlines and that's what happiness and was a warm gun was and they turn it into this like ode to to the morphine that these uh soldiers were were getting hooked on as they came back from the yeah. war salma hayek popping up in that cameo yeah, sequence or yeah. cameo in that sequence too but uh yeah so there's some moments that really really hit and the and the ending i think it goes out on like an incredibly high note at the end there i agree but yeah um strawberry fields does not hit for me yep doesn't it doesn't uh revolution is is probably my least favorite scene in the entire movie <laughs> If only because he comes back in. It's ridiculous it's at that point. It's you, the second time. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to you me. You did not have to have the full song. Like once they kick him out, you just end it. And then say you, yeah. yeah, poor poor Logan Marshall Green's left there to be like, what? Get this, get this Joker out of here. Like get this, yeah. And they hit him. All right, and he's just yelling as he's like being yeah. taken out. Yeah, yeah, that is. There's there's a couple of times when they it, they incorporate like distinctive moments of the real Beatles songs into the performances. That is the worst version (laughs) of that. I think when he's yelling, all right, as they're kicking him out. Yeah. As the, yeah, the best version of that, I think is when, uh, Max gets really excited to see him at the port and yells out. Yeah. Jude, Jude, Judy, Judy. I agree. I agree with that. That works. That that works really well. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think, and that might be why just, just the, I I don't I say I don't really love being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Some people do, and I get that. And and but then it's like you get because, and then you get something right after what feels kind of like two very slow songs, kind mm-hmm. of saying the same thing. It feels like to me at one point, and then all of a sudden, oh darling, Sadie and Jojo are breaking up. It's mm-hmm. like I feel like a, a big jump between what just like the previous time we saw them together, and then it's even though it's a great song. I think oh, man. Store, Martin like, Luther McCoy slays. He is so cool in that scene when he just like plugs his guitar back in and starts jamming. Let's get back to doing it. Yeah. And like, everyone, everyone kind of, not everyone turns on Sadie theme. Everyone like starts getting into Jojo at that point yeah. with that song. But yeah, it's like, but like structure wise, it just feels like a jump. And then we get strawberry fields forever, which just feels 
odd again feels very much like because are they are they yeah it's after they're starting to they're starting to break they're starting to kind of break up yeah that's her that that's her moment of like i don't know who you are anymore you're you're throwing strawberries everywhere yeah like you're not a part of the revolution and then guess what we get revolution right yep. after that you say so you want a like revolution a, yeah you better free your mind instead <laughs> I like that they actually have. I like that they actually have a portrait of Chairman Mao hanging on the. Yeah, and he points to it. He yeah. points. To it. It, that's the song. It almost takes everything too literal. Yep. Yep. That's the thing. Is that it takes this? It takes everything too literal. As I said, I mean, yeah. It's and everything else kind of like interprets it in a certain way. That's just like we gotta make everything literal in this in this song. And yeah, so it's like I, I and maybe that's maybe just like that kind of like eight to ten minute sequence is what just really bumps me the mm. most it wouldn't have killed you to talk to him you know he's got a good mind he's committed he's involved he's a shaka a what a shaka a don juan a seducer of young vulnerable women <laughs> jude you know nothing about him well, every time i go to your place there's about 50 people there there's one bloke licking stamps and the other 49 are Oh, they're all female. Don't exaggerate. Trust me, I'm not. We're in the middle of a revolution, Jude. And what are you doing? Doodles and cartoons? I didn't mean it like that. No? No? Well, what did you mean? You know, I'm sorry I'm not the man with the megaphone, but this is what I do. You can at least hear what he has to say. I suppose you don't, though, because you know you're never going to be drafted. No, will you, Lucy? I would lie down in front of a tank if it would stop this war and bring Max home. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't. What do you mean it wouldn't? You don't think that it's worth trying? I didn't say that. Well, maybe when bombs start going off here, people will listen. This was favorite scenes, and <laughs> I feel like I was very negative about certain things. Um, but I, let's to, to to jump with this. But all you need is well, the Hey Jude sequence. I love it. I think that's the secret. Again, again, what Tamor does, and I did read her say this, is that she wanted to like, or I think it was one of the reviews you sent about how, about like combining music video, like type techniques mm -hmm. or or storytelling in this. And so a lot of the songs feel like music videos, and yeah. I feel like the ones in the first half feel more like it. Um, and that's but the, but hey, Jude's an example where I think that feels like a good music video of you're getting the story of Jude coming back. Oh, he's like, he's in England, he's been deported. And it's like, it's a very kind of emotional moment where he begins to like hear, hear uh, Max as like, okay, I'm going to go back the right way and get back to America to be with my kind of newfound uh, makeshift family mm -hmm. and to get, to get uh, Lucy back. And then again, all you need is love. I think is a very perfect is a, is a very solid and almost perfect ending. Probably. Uh, that ties into the Beatles lore of the cons the rooftop concert. Yeah, uh, it does it incredibly well. And and just like a like a beautiful arrangement of it, kind of going out on that having like the whole cast yeah. singing behind him. And and sh and the thing is that there's a great add in because so uh, uh, it's the she loves you. Mm -hmm. he, they bring in she loves you. and is that in the original song? I yeah, prefer, that I think it, that, it that's is. in it the is. original. I need his love. That's yeah. what I thought. Is that they bring in "She Loves You"? Yeah, yeah, calling back to the earlier Beatles song, and and this song they interpret it well and they add a new meaning to it. And it's 
Max telling Jude she loves you. Yeah, yeah. As mm-hmm. as uh as Lucy's watching across the the at, at a different building because she couldn't get up there watching and seeing him for the first time. And it's kind of it's 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 a beautiful moment. That's yeah. a beautiful moment. Yeah, there's some there's some really, really nice moments in this movie where yeah. they hit it. They 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 hit they, it. They get it yeah, right. I agree. Sometimes they get it right completely. set life the cast it sounds like the cast got along great while they were working on it sturgis uh noticed how similar their lives were to the characters in the film as they were all living together in new york and on their off nights they would all go out dana fuchs was still performing in shows around new york so they would go out and <laughs> oh, see that was probably fun <laughs> yeah go out and see dana fuchs shows they all speak to having a wonderful time on set and say that Tamor created an inviting and collaborative atmosphere for a group of actors who are all new to such a large production keep that in mind the the <laughs> how what the actors have to say about their experience with julie tamor on set that'll come back into play later oh really and a large production it was it eventually grew to a reported 45 million dollar budget uh requiring over five thousand extras 300 dancers 70 locations and elaborate production design including puppets created by bread and butter theater who made the uh all the really creepy puppets that you see in the film <laughs> although documents uncovered in the later sale of revolution studios would hint that the production budget was actually somewhere around 70 million yep that happens sometimes you cover yep. it up <laughs> uh, tamor also noted how relevant the film felt while they were making it while staging the vietnam protest march in new york city she said many yeah. people approached the pro- approach the production and ask if they were protesting the war in afghanistan which was then entering its sixth year during uh, the production. Yeah, were they were they, sh- they were shooting during 06 or were they shooting at the beginning of 07? 06, yeah. And while the agreement with the owners of the Beatles, the Beatles catalog, who was, who at this time? Oh, that's Michael Jackson, right? Michael Jackson. Uh, prevented the film from mentioning the Beatles or using the name the Beatles in any advertising. Wow. See, that makes sense of why I didn't see it in theaters. That yeah. makes complete sense because I was like, "What is this movie?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you go yeah. back and watch the trailer; they don't say a word about it. But anyway, the surviving Beatles were still approached for their blessing on the project. Um, Ringo and Paul had a lot of input into the film, according to um, Tamor. And one specific thing that she reached out for after she came up with the idea to turn John Lennon's "Aching Blues" ballad for Yoko Ono, "I Want You," she's so heavy into an epic sequence about the military industrial complex. Uh, Tamor specifically reached out to Ono to ask her permission to change the meaning of the song in the film, since it was a very personal song to her mm-hmm. and received her blessing. It's so, yeah, it seems like everyone had a very good time on set. The mm-hmm. problems began as they tend to do in post-production. Always. 
That's the one key I've learned in the, when we do this show is that everything, I mean, like a lot of stuff just falls apart when they're like, oh shit, this is the movie we made? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the studio's like, we, this, is the, this is the movie we paid for? Oh man. That is exactly what happened here. Um, yep. Executives at Revolution Studios started thinking the film was too long and too radical. <laughs> Tamor says that Sony present, it was a co-production with, between Sony Pictures and Revolution Studios. Tamor says that Sony president, uh, Amy Pascal, after the first screening, told her it was the best thing she had ever seen. But uh, Revolution chairman Joe Roth started panicking. Against Tamor's contract and without her knowledge, uh, which her contract granted her a final cut of the film, Roth created his own toned-down edit, eliminating 20 minutes of the film, cutting back the parts of all non-white characters in the movie, and axing some of the content wow. he viewed as too political, including the footage of the Detroit riots, the entire I want to hold your hand sequence, along with all references to Prudence's sexuality, and specifically even wow. a, a line he had a major problem with where Lucy, and, and having seen the movie, it's not that important, but there's a line when Lucy says having children is narcissistic. And, yeah, at the beginning, towards the beginning. Yeah, yeah, and he was convinced that no one was going to like her after she said that, so he cut that out as well. Roth then proceeded to test this cut behind Tamor's back before presenting it to her with the test scores and suggesting that she take that version instead. Tamor was understandably blindsided and stood firmly by her version, which Pascal backed, and eventually Roth had to uh, yeah. agree to that because Tamor's contract did grant her final cut. Yeah, Roth eventually agreed to using Tamor's cut, but not before someone falsely leaked to the press that Tamor had broken into hysterics to preserve her vision of the film. Oh, no. Which leads us to mm -hmm. the aftermath. Mm -hmm. Studio drama leaked to the press, and the story surrounding this movie leading up to the end of it was what a diva or a tyrant Julie Tamor was about her creative vision for this film. Mm-hmm. I, which is why I said to recall before that everyone, except for this anonymous source leaking stories to the press, had nothing but Love amazing things to say about working to say with about her. her. Yeah, and so it was already uh, it was already a tough run to drum up support for the movie because they had no mm -hmm. notable cast and they were unable to use the word Beatles in any of the promotional material. But now it seemed like someone at one of their supporting studios was actively running sabotage against the film. That's. That's insane. And, and and this and this sadly goes with the reoccurring theme of what happens with female filmmakers in this period of time, specifically of how they get categorized as divas to work with or, yep. or it's it's that's the it's, if it's a man, it's a genius. If it's a woman, it's a diva is kind of what happens yeah. in this period. Standing um, there and saying, I it's my contract gives me final cut. I want final cut like any male director would be able to say that. No problem. Yeah. And she, and the thing is, she was, she was also. We talked about how she was a Tony, she or she was uh, a critically acclaimed and 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 did huge musicals with Lion King. But like, she's also the first woman to, I think, win Best Director at the Tonys for a musical, mm. like ever. So she's, I mean, she's, and she's known for doing these kind of big, uh, large. I think it's like with Titus, and that's like that's all like very. I don't want to say avant-garde or experimental, but it's very against the norm of what's being made. And you would think when you put her to bring to come in and do across the universe, that's what you're gonna get. Mm -hmm. Is something that's not like something you would see from any other director. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it happens consistently. I mean, anytime after this, you'll, you'll see, I remember I had a professor, she talked about this, like, watch it. Anytime you see a big budget at this point in time in the late 2000s, early 2010s, is that anytime you see a big franchise film with a female director, if there is a sequel, they will not be the director for that second one. Mm-hmm. And if you look at something like Twilight, if you look at something like Fifty Shades of Grey, that all happened. Is that they let a female director do the first one, and then it's like all males after that. And now I think, hope, I hope, as we're seeing it in the past few years, with like Patty Jenkins coming doing Wonder Woman, that is slowly, be- as quickly, or I don't know, it's beginning to change. I don't know how, what speed, but it's beginning to change. Yep. Yep. Unfortunately, it's not changing fast enough. I yeah, know. I was like, it's not quickly, it's not slowly. It's just, it's as, changing. In as life. we can see in the vitriolic hate poured towards Kathleen Kennedy in her work oh, on yeah. anything. Um, on anything. It, oh, gosh. I, that That's a, oh, God. I, I'll be quick with it. I have people who are like, oh, yeah, it's like, that's why Mandalorian's good because Kathleen Turner st- or, Ka- or Kathleen Kennedy, st- not that Kathleen Turner, Kathleen Kennedy stepped aside and let the, the those guys do their thing. I was like, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. Everything you like to go back and look at any movie that you liked when you were a kid, Kathleen Kennedy made that movie. Sorry for our listeners. I didn't expect this to be a Kathleen Kennedy. A Kathleen Kennedy. I will always stand up for Kathleen <laughs> Kennedy Kathleen any Kennedy. day. Let's yeah. go. Um, all right continue sorry anyway, <laughs> back to the promotion of this film uh as far as the promotion goes tamor even noted that the the poster that was used for the film was completely against her wishes saying i don't know anyone who worked on this movie that would have picked that poster um if you remember the initial release poster it was the white with the just the like painted strawberry on it i came f- oh this one her initial choice for the poster was to kind of a trippier uh poster using some of the photos taken from the because water sequence and that mm-hmm. would eventually become the poster that she chose to use for the 4k restoration release gotcha so yeah the cast did some publicity runs they performed some of the pieces on television shows but they really failed to drum up much support with a very strange limited release model it, it really kind of started very slow i remember we my friends and i had to get our moms to drive us uh like an hour and a half outside of charleston just to even find a theater that was playing it at the time um yeah. and the film only made about six hundred fifty thousand dollars opening weekend eventually topped out at 30 million dollars worldwide yeah that's not good um reviews were intensely mixed it's it's really rare to find critics as divided on a film as they were on this one um some critic some critics were handing out scathing one-star reviews calling the film an insult to the beatles music it interpreted while others like our boy roger ebert roger gave this movie four stars yeah calling it a bold beautiful visually enchanting musical and praising its relevance in 2007 america saying it fires songs like flowers at the way we live now but uh, what Julie Taymor considers the most important reviews, Ringo, Paul, Yoko, and Olivia Harrison all voice their appreciation of the film. And Taymor says she always knew when they were on set that this was destined to be a cult film. And, and she was right, despite the mixed reviews from critics. I think it currently sits at like a like a 56 on Rotten Tomatoes, which is literally... Dead center. As, as, as middle of the road as you can get. Yeah. Despite the mixed reviews from critics and disappointing box office returns, the film found 
ardent fans and people like Ebert who noted it was the only film of the season that he had made time to see twice. Uh, the soundtrack itself went on to be platinum and continued support for the film eventually led to Sony approving a 4K restoration and theatrical release through Fathom Events. Important to note that Revolution Studios had already been sold off by the time the uh, 4K restoration came well, about. This, I mean, this kind of broke them. Yep. Like th this failure kind of broke them because if you look at the history, it goes before this, it's so our brother Solomon that hit Will Arnett, Will Forte movie. <laughs> um, and, and that, that loot that made for 10 million loot and only made, made for 10 million only makes a million uh, across the universe only makes 30 million off the $70 million budget. And that's the water horse. Oh man. Forgot that forgot that movie existed. And that was like a, at least a forty million dollar movie that made money, but I think at that point it like they had lost so much money on this movie and previous movies. It just kind of, it kind of ruined them. Who's to say? Who's to blame for a lot of the negative press for this film? But um, it seems like it was a very simple uh, and easy process to get the four K restoration put out in theaters. So you know, draw your own conclusions from mm -hmm. that's that statement. So. We've, we've already covered this a little bit, but uh, <laughs> what ultimately works for this movie? Well, what works, the music works for the most part. Uh, the visuals are stunning. Even if there's certain moments I don't fully like, I think Tamor's visuals are are breathtaking. And as Ebert said, bold. Um, I, I think a lot of the casting really works. Mm -hmm. Um I a lot of the critics you kind of talked about. I some of the critics of the they, they kind of said it was a very like blanket 1960s or very like it made the 60s. It was very it, like that it did un, injustice to the 60s, and I don't see that. Yeah. Um. I also, think you know, when when is a well. musical had the ability to create you know a detailed layered look at a at a time period <laughs> like you're not holding up west side story for being inaccurate to to new york in the well, 50s i don't know what, what when is that supposed to be said side thing to go off to what worked about your aftermath if every review you sent me that came out at the time it's like every reviewer used a beatles lyric to close their article <laughs> yeah did you notice whether, that? whether it was good or bad yep good or bad it's like oh they're just fixing a hole yep. or like or like Ebert goes out of his way just to say, go watch a hard day's night. If you haven't, don't let me down. Yeah. Like it just like, it makes no sense anyway. So no, I think I think the casting works and the visuals work. I think, um, so yeah. And, and I like the vibe of the movie. That's the thing. I, I do think, I think, I do think that's why I think millennials are people, our, our generation kind of gravitates toward, toward it. It's, it's a, it's a, that vibe of a movie that vibe that movie gets off wasn't really happening around that time. Mm -hmm. It feels like on that large of a scale. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what really works about it. Yeah. It, it I, I speaking as a kid who was seeing it at the time, it felt exciting. It felt like yeah. an art house film that was, that was made for me, made for, you know, yeah. someone my age, which um, Julie Taymor has kind of said that, that she, she well, she, she said, you're not gonna she said I'm, I'm especially i'm not gonna get somebody who doesn't know the beatles at all to like this movie that's just not yeah. it's probably not gonna happen and she said and if they yeah. like the beatles too much they're not gonna like this movie but she said everyone likes the beatles a little bit and, and those are the people 
that that we're going to reach out for. And I mean, I loved the Beatles at this point, but it also this this opened my you know I don't know it just it felt cool it felt relevant it um I don't know that she made it with a fifteen year old teenager in mind but but it definitely spoke to me at that point yeah and i think i think it spoke to a lot of people i think it was again i think it was people at our age probably knew the beatles but they weren't entrenched in the beatles music and the history and the lore and in some cases this was the intro to that for mm -hmm. them and if you look at it you gotta think because it's it's hard to kind of tell nowadays with how music is so accessible and things are so accessible to us nowadays Around this time, it was hard to get Beatles music outside yep. of physical copies. My my friends, I had a I had a, a good group of friends that that in, in in kind of in our surrounding friend group, there there was one of my best friends and I were both super into the Beatles and we had like gotten the rest of our friends into the Beatles. And we had this kind of agreement that everyone would raid their parents' CD collections and we all traded whichever Beatles albums our parents had and, wow. and pretty much came up with like the full catalog, just passing everyone else, everyone's parents Beatles mm -hmm. albums around. No, no one's, no one had parents who had all, all of, them. of them. Yeah. Just enough. That's, that's funny. But like, cause I think of like what happens after this? Well, a few years afterwards, I don't know how long afterwards, but a few years afterwards you get like, Beatles are coming to iTunes, baby. I was in college that, at that point. Yeah, that was a big announcement. Mm -hmm. Then you get like Beatles, uh, Beatles with a Guitar Hero or Beatles Rock uh, Band was before band. college. Rock I was, band. I was, yeah, that was probably two thousand nine. Beatles Rock Band you came get out. B Beatles Cirque du Soleil. Yep, like a right that was after this. Eight. That was directly after this. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think it's a. I'm not. Uh, this is kind of the first Beatles thing, in that kind of arc of Beatles being discovered by people or rediscovered by people or being more part of the public consciousness again mm -hmm. um, is it was this. And then after like, I, you, you wonder what happens, this comes out three years later. Mm. Is it a bigger hit? Yeah. I don't know. Possibly. Yeah. I agree with you on all that. And, and, and another thing I just, every time I come back to this or every time my, my iPods on shuffle and it pops up, I just like the arrangements, the, the work that, um, that, uh, I get golden thaw, golden thaw. Yeah. And T-bone Burnett do is just incredible yeah. because it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really amazing orchestrations. And then these like little, and, and, and they do enough to make it their own, but then there's all these little like musical references to yeah. to the the songs that they are using and i think like i said i think the the kind of blending that they do with little with a little help from my friends is is one of the best examples of that mm -hmm. but while while we are here in our what worked what didn't work section before we we fully tip the scale into what didn't work i have i have a, a big question for you okay because i read like a dozen reviews for this movie today to prepare for this and <laughs> every single review mentions one sequence in this film and it's either to show how ingenious julie tamor is at adapting the songs into something new or it is to show absolute disgust at how she has warped beatles songs into something that they don't stand Ooh, for interesting and and that is the I want you she's so heavy sequence. So what do you, what do you think? What are your thoughts? Um 
I don't hate that sequence. Um, I it's funny because I I think it makes I think it's a good I think it's a decent interpretation because like, some are like I remember some of the, some of the ones you sent me were reading like how dare they it's so like kind of on the nose of like oh it's when it goes to she's so heavy they're carrying the Statue of Liberty um, and it's the I want you it's the I am saying but that's art it's it's like you interpret it how you want to interpret mm-hmm. is it Tamor and them interpreted the song oh this would be great to show the like this specific era of America. Yeah. And I think, I think it works. I think that works. Yeah. What, what like, Tamar spe- said specifically was that they already knew Max was going to get drafted. That was an early, mm-hmm. I think that was in the script before she even came on to it. And, and as they were going through the song catalog, she was just like, Oh, I want you. That is already the slogan the of uncle Sam. <laughs> like, and here's the, and here's the thing. I don't really love that song by the Beatles. So like, that's, <laughs> it's that's just a why, jam. Like, I mean, it, yeah, it is, it's a jam it song. Is. It's, it's, um, it's like seven minutes. The, at the, at like, it's, it's on the white album, right? It's like, the, it's like side one of, or is it? It's Abbey road. Oh, it's the end. Thank you. Wow. I'm, oh, I feel terrible now. Uh, don't tell me I'm Beatles. Card. Yeah. It's the it's end, the end of, of side one, side one of Abbey road. Because side yes. two is that like amazing. It's all, it's, it's, it's the all Abbey related. road medley. Yeah. Yeah. Because it kind of, because it, because because side one of Abby, uh, it's side the end of side one. I wrote it kind of just ends mm-hmm. like there's no like I want you. She's so heavy. It doesn't like just like fades out. It just like ends and the record stops and you have to flip it over and then you yeah. go and it opens with uh um is the something open the mm-hmm. first yeah for 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 side two yeah something opens it but no yeah I like that sequence I think it works sue me timeout article. <laughs> The guy, guy who wrote the one star timeout review. Yeah, I just thought it was so funny because that it. I, I read a couple bad ones and everybody was like, "This is the worst example of of how this movie interprets Beatles songs." But then, uh, but then, like some of the good reviews were like, "Yeah, it's really creative what she does here." And I was like, "Oh, yeah, this this shows the uh, two different viewpoints you could come into this." All right, so um, so what actually what what does not work? We've covered this a little bit, but just to yeah. get, our, get our final judgments on it i don't say the second half doesn't work i said the second half is flawed um and i think the songs we point we pinpoint of like strawberry fields forever i that was the one where i would just go why is this in this movie right now mm-hmm. like it feels like it feels like we're, we've gotten it or we're about to get the same meaning elsewhere um again i don't love being for the benefit of mr kite <laughs> i just don't love it i'm not saying it doesn't work I just don't love it. Um, here's this whole thing. All, all this. I mean, I, it might be because I'm I'm very accustomed to these songs, but I kind of wish there were some lesser known songs on here. I think I think there are. are I mean, which ones like, do you think are the more I feel lesser like known? Girl wasn't you know a, a huge Beatles hit. I loved Girl beforehand. And, and again, yeah, it might because yeah. it might be it, it might be because I grew up. I knew this album so much. I think these are the most recognizable songs. Mm-hmm. Maybe why I'm saying that. But I will say this: one one song off of Rubber Soul. That's the <laughs> best we got. And well, see zero that. zero off of Revolver. Apparently, come on. Uh, don't see that's because a lot of Rubber Soul and Revolver were going into my sequel that i wrote when i was 15 years old but we'll talk about that later oh yeah well, yeah yeah we gotta get in that 
Um, they didn't even use help in this movie, but that's okay. I'll help take it. it. They... I'll use it for my movie. <laughs> they used one song from Help. Which was the song they used from Help? Was All My Loving? No, that's in Hard Day's Night. I've just seen a face. That's the one yeah. from from Help. And and JoJo's like working sequence. on And I Love Her. Um, but that's Hard Day's Night as well. Oh. Yeah, you're right. That's hard because yeah, I can picture that, them yeah, they... seeing it in the movie. But yeah, you're right. I am picturing it in black and white. Um, <laughs> I've seen the face, which is a, which I've said before. Great sequence. Yeah, that's really fun. Um, and that's the, a great the, sequence. the arrangement of that one is really fun. They do a kind mm-hmm. of like rockabilly thing with it. Yeah. And so, some dialogue. It's like almost like <laughs> I want a little bit more dialogue, but also maybe I didn't. I don't know. I'm somewhere in the between on that one. Like, I just think the transitional stuff doesn't fully work. And I wonder if a few more dialogue scenes help with that. Also, I do wish I had more TV Car- Carpio yeah. uh, in this movie. She's not in there as much as she should be. Yeah. She's, she's great. not. She has a great song with, I want to hold your hand. And I love the dear prudence one for her. And then just kind of like not there for the whole back half of the movie might be why I don't like the back half as much. She's not That's there. True. Most of the time until the very end of the movie. Well, and they've got a um, they've got a whole thing in the behind the scenes special features about how her history as a uh, figure skater helped her do the like Henry the Horse performance and how hard she worked as the Henry the Horse performance and Mr. Kite. And I feel like staging that entirely on a green screen kind of takes away from the impressiveness of her of her. Yeah. Rollerblading in a horse costume. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it just drags in those in, in the second half for me. A little I, can, bit of I, can, time. I can agree with that for sure. And as someone who is not a Bono fan whatsoever, we haven't even talked about Bono. I, I yeah, it's um, like sometimes I watch my oh I like Bono's in here, and then I'm like, why is Bono in here? <laughs> uh, so a little bit alternative universe cast. Uh, yeah. There's not a whole lot, but a couple a couple of little facts. Joe Anderson was originally brought in to audition for Jude. And uh, okay. after reading through the script, he told Julie Taymor that he thought he was a better fit for Max. And they let him they let him go for it. Is he British? Is he English? Yes, he is British. OK, good. Well, I didn't know that. Good accent, right? Yeah, good accent. Because for my for my recast, I was looking for American actors. Like, oh, you got to have American because uh, Joe Anderson's American. Apparently not. Jake Gyllenhaal was the only name I could find. He was considered for Jude at one point. And also was was my Tony in my um in my yeah I, West Side Story. I feel like he's more of a Max though. I could see that. I feel like he'd I could feel I see he fit more as a Max. Yeah. Uh, and then the only other one is for uh, for much of pre production, David Bowie was intended to play Mr. Kite, but uh, oh, after scheduling man. conflicts, Eddie Izzard came in to cover for him. I really want that now that I hear that. <laughs> not not a, not nothing against Izzard. I just. It's David Bowie. Yeah. It's Bowie. Yep. It's Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> it's Bowie. It's Bowie. <laughs> yeah, that's uh that's about all we got. That's, that's the cast. All right, so film fact, what you got? Got some film facts. Um it was very important to Taymor uh because she wanted this to kind of like I said reach reach a larger audience um that she avoid an R rating. So she was told that she had a specific number of times that marijuana could be shown on camera, which led to the uh, fake joint in the with a little help from my friend sequence where characters are shown inhaling from nothing, but then exhaling smoke. <laughs> they're, just, they're just like holding their fingers in front of their mouths. 
I, uh, I remember that now. Yeah, you're right. She was also told that a scene in which uh, Jude was intended to sketch Lucy nude would uh, lead to an R rating. And be- if if Evan Rachel Wood showed both of her breasts, but that if she only showed one, they could keep PG-13. Okay. <laughs> the, they they the, won that the, Titanic the, moment. The rules are so... so that's so weird. Someone did a test where like, they showed a movie... They got like like say half the people think it should be an R, half the people should be a PG thirteen. They show it again, don't change anything, and the half of them like change like switch their opinions on stuff. Like it's all just like, what's my what am I feeling today? <laughs> mm-hmm. The nurses in the uh, the happiness is a warm gun sequence were meant to be a full cast of dancers, uh, but Selma Hayek who had uh, who had starred in Julie Taymor's last film, uh, Frida called Tamor during production and asked if she had a part for her in Across the Universe. Julie Tamor said, well, you could play one of our dancing nurses, to which Hayek said, just one, Julie? <laughs> but I think that adds so much more to that sequence if it's all yeah, just when they kind of Hayek. like split out of the one person. Yeah, it's, it's that's amazing. Well. That's pretty cool. And in that same sequence, the uh, the flailing priest is Daniel Ezrelo, the film's choreographer. He performed that part. Uh, the Doctor Robert character, who's played by Bono, is a uh, is a reference to author Ken Kesey, who carried his merry band of pranksters around the country in a bus titled Further, and the the sequence when they go to this other kind of competing cult, I guess I don't know what the word would be, uh, Doctor Geary that they go to see. Yeah, I was gonna ask, like, is 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 Mister Kite Doctor Geary, or is that just like a re- is that just like we don't know. Yeah, I think that's some. I don't know. I think he's he's off in a different field. But um, okay. But Doctor Geary is a reference to Timothy Leary, who was another kind of acid guru of oh, the yeah. era and who had a a feud with Kesey. Uh, Kesey wanted LSD to be distributed to the world, while um, while Timothy Leary maintained that it should be received uh, that it should be held back for the enlightened elite. Okay, Timothy Leary. Ken Kesey, of course, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yep um and rumor has it that the final figure paid to michael jackson for the use of the songs in this film was oh god what you want to give me an over under 20 million 10 oh damn but depending on which figure you go with the 45 million dollar budget or the 70 million dollar budget it was either a fourth or a seventh of the total budget of the film god and he still had tax problems (laughs) so do do you have any story questions I got a few. Uh, what Mr. Kite's tour? What's that like? <laughs> I think it's just a lot of drugs. Yeah, considering how small the tent that they uh, they go into. They just, tra- they just travel around, and does like Prudence go off with him? Is what it is. Like, where does she go? That was my next question. Where does she go for that last half of that movie? Because she just disappears. Yeah, she she keeps on with them, but then she comes back when when Sadie starts her, her record label. Yeah. Yeah. But see, Prudence, like, but I always get confused because, like, Prudence disappears because they see joins her with up. Mr. K- Prudence joins up with Mr. Kites because they're at the that protest. It's the same puppets, right? Yes. So she joins up with the circus at that protest. And I always get so I always miss that she's not with them during the beyond the I am the walrus sequence. Right. That I always get confused. She's not in there because then she's in with them afterwards. So I, I don't know. Like that's when I was like, "Where did she go?" So I guess 
I guess they're at the protest. What it is that you're saying is that she leaves with them. Yeah, they have the Dear Prudence sequence. She she kind of runs off with that with those puppets. So Dr. Kite or Mr. Okay. Kite's uh, troop. And then they they run into her who knows how long later. I think there's there's a, a decent amount of time that's that's passed between that and, and going to the um, going to Dr. Robert's party. Next question. Do you think Jude and Lucy last? Um, well, that that you'd have to you'll have to see my sequel. Does that like, do we lead? Do we lead into you pitching your sequel here? My sequel that I wrote when I was 15 and have not edited anything since. <laughs> Yeah, that one. It's um, it's real deep. All right, yeah. So you want to hear what happens? You want to hear what happens to it? Well, because so so again with this too, like they're talking about doing a sequel to this. We haven't mentioned yeah, this. Julie T- Julie Taymor has said that she has a sequel that that kind of spans the seventies and eighties, which my sequel is in the nineties. So yeah, nineties and the two thousands. Don't so, steal this, guys. Yeah, don't don't steal this, guys. Okay, I'm trusting all of you. It's on record, copyright, nation. Also, if you don't like it, I was fifteen. Okay, if you do like yeah. it. <laughs> If you do like it, I was a child prodigy. But um, yeah, how are you? If you don't like it, I was a, I was an idiot. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Jude and Lucy eventually have kids. Three kids: Vera, Chuck, and Dave. Yeah. From from when I'm 64, obviously. When I'm 64. Yeah. Um, and those kids go on to we we kind of see them graduate high school. They go off to New York in the late 90s. Uh, Vera kind of wants to be a singer. You know, she's grown up with like her aunt Sadie, who was like a famous singer. And so she wants to kind of get into the music scene. But she also wants to go to college and make good grades. Uh, Dave is like a is just like a finance bro. I'm going to go to college. And I'm going to work on Wall Street. Yeah, dude, yeah, dude Lord loves Gordon Gecko. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And meanwhile, Chuck is like a burnout and he tells his parents he also got into school in New York, but he just wants to go live in New York Mm -hmm. and have fun. Uh, He eventually falls in with like the heroin scene in New York in the late 90s. You know, everyone was singing about it. We didn't know it at the time. All those songs are about heroin. Um, uh, Meanwhile, Vera is kind of still like trying to decide whether to follow her heart or not. Dave gets out of college just sells out immediately man he's he's working on wall street he's making his money he's getting mm-hmm. a corporate job he's selling out and then okay and now knows when you have to forgive me i was 15 <laughs> i thought i thought i was being very uh i don't know what the word would be uh profound very profound here, here uh, comes your remember your remember me thing dave is killed in the attacks on 9-11 you got you got to be topical. You got to you gotta yeah, keep yeah. it topical, you know. And uh, Chuck is is almost like just driven by by his grief. He's almost mm-hmm. lost completely. But Vera manages to help him clean up. Meanwhile, she realizes that she got to chase the things that matter in life. Decides to pursue her music career. And mm-hmm. like I said, a lot of music, a lot of music that wasn't used in the original that we can use here. But the main thing. Yeah that ties it all together was when they were kids jude and lucy used to sing golden slumbers to them as a lullaby and that's going to continue as a theme throughout the movie including i was 15 i had not seen the bg's version of sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band they do sing (laughs) golden slumbers at a funeral in that movie i did not know that at the time so you cannot (laughs) accuse me of ripping it off 
but in my version they would sing golden slumbers at dave's funeral and they would continue to sing it throughout the movie it would be this kind of like recurring song that they would go to um but yeah there you go that's my pitch that's what happens that's pitch. to these characters julie Taymor, if your sequel comes out so, and it is that plot i'm gonna know you listen to this thanks for listening <laughs> give us a review and a rating and tell your friends <laughs> <laughs> i like i was i was thinking that i was trying to think of like songs that would be in that one um i know i had help i had if i needed someone yeah that's 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 a good one that's yeah. an underrated one mm-hmm. tax man um, you gotta bring in tax, tax man You're I, was making like, a, I was looking at tax man just now yeah, yeah making a movie about uh oh you gotta do i'm a loser i love oh I'm yeah i love i'm a loser that's that that could be a uh um a chuck that could be chuck's song yeah i'm a loser he's a burnout um uh i because beatles for sale is not a great album that has some f- nice songs on it. eight days a week uh no reply and then there's gonna yeah. be when i'm 64 it's gonna be in the, it's gotta be yeah, in it's gonna be in there yeah and be you got you gotta keep you gotta go back to to lucy and uh and Jude, though, yeah, like, is where are they living at? Where are they living at? Suburbs. It's it's the late nineties, man. Suburbs. It's like so, someone's got to sing. I've got a feeling. That's all I have to say. Someone's I do love. Gotta I've got say, a feeling. I love that one. Yeah. All right. Let's see what's next. Uh, all right, we got some awards. Here we go. Okay. Paul Williams Music Award favorite song of the film. For for me, I gotta say, I want to hold your hand. Okay. Is mine. There's a lot of mo- there's a lot of songs I do love in here. Uh. Anything by Martin Luther McCoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, While my guitar gently weeps is possibly up there. Ah, that's it's between those two. It's between I want to hold your hand and while my guitar gently weeps are kind of my two. And let it be. Those are my top three. And <laughs> <laughs> just keep going. Uh, Joe Cocker come together. Yeah, those are those are all of them. <laughs> those are my top four. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Those are my top four. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, then Revolution number five. No, I'm kidding. Um. <laughs> So what what are you thinking? What are you thinking here for you? I I I back you. I I think I want to hold your hand is a is a, an excellent example of kind of the way they change it. They pair it with like a really talented musician, a really talented singer, and it, it completely mm-hmm. changes the song for you. But I gotta go with while well, my guitar gently weeps. Like Martin okay. Luther McCoy just like bodies that song, like just nails it, and it does it do, it does change it a little bit, and then yeah. um. You know, it it slows it down. It makes it obviously it was kind of a sad song before, but especially by kind of pulling that piano out, mm-hmm. uh, you just really let that you let that guitar just weep. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, literally like the next year with the kind of remixing that um, Giles Martin did for love, they would do like a orchestral version of it, which is actually really mm-hmm. good too. the version off of the the love soundtrack of that song is really interesting as well but i think the the through line between both of those everyone realized like we really need to ease this song back like this is a song about gently weeping you got to pull the drums you pull the the kind of driving piano out of it and you just let let that guitar weep i think i've heard i think i've heard like because there there are like there's like a a a rip down a stripped down version of that like like harrison's demo or something yeah yeah and that's what they that's what they used for the basis of the the love version yeah that makes sense. So I'll 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 go with it because I'm thinking like what did I have downloaded and that I listened to consistently and that I still listen to and I think as a song it's why my guitar gently weeps as a like story point point I think I want to or I guess I mean they're both ca- good character pieces. 
but I want to hold your hand as we said takes it the meaning of that song and twist it enough but I think as a song that I will listen to both in the movie and outside the movie a lot it would be while my guitar gently weeps I look at the world and I notice it's turning while my guitar gently weeps with every mistake we must surely be learning still my guitar gently weeps Uh, Beatrice Strait Award with, for the actor or actress with limited scenes that kills it. Okay, this is tough. This is this is a tough one. These acting stuff is tough for this one because everyone's kind of like, kind of around the same, like they're in the same thing. So it's like... So I just want to make sure you're you're not going to pick famed clown Bill Irwin. For I his, thought about it. For his cameo as Uncle Teddy. That might be that might we should do the Matt Damon cameo award here because yeah. there's a couple in the running here. That's true. All right, let's and do that real quick. Matt Damon cameo. Okay. I'm, I'm probably still not giving it to Bill Irwin, but <laughs> I do love no, I love Bill ca- Irwin. But uh, if we're doing cameo, I, I gotta go with Joe Cocker. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I have Joe Cocker for for cameo award. I just think still got it. Yeah, I I love that they introduce him as the hobo, and you're like, oh man, yeah. Joe Cocker looks awful, and then he shows up as the pimp. You're like, oh, that was yeah. that was makeup. He <laughs> yeah, and he's a mad hippie, mm-hmm. and it's just like yeah, um, yeah, Joe Cocker for that for sure. He back production. He got walrus gumboot. He got on the He won't spine cracker. He got feet down below. back to Beatrice straight award it's like who so like so none of the okay none of the six lead none of the six people in the ensemble count here correct okay yeah no no i'm just asking right though they don't count in this because i would like, i would maybe give you tv carpio but that's what know. i'm thinking that's just because she has like criminally limited scenes screw it i'm going tv carpio let's just go we're gonna All put right. her here she should she should she should be up for supporting but she's not in for the last like hour of the movie She's not in for a lot. Like she goes from having I want to hold your hand to then just coming into the bathroom window, then a few more scenes in between there, disappears, kite, disappears again. So I'll yep. go with, might be pushing it a little bit, but I'll go with Car- TV Carpio for, as Prudence, who needs a bigger role. Yep. Uh, there we go. Very tough one. Annie Potts, X Factor Award, supporting actor or actress that is the most memorable. <sighs> It's between two people, I feel mm-hmm. like. I, I have a feeling I'm thinking the same two people. And that's Joe Anderson and Martin Luther McCoy. Yep. 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 Those are the two. They're both electric in this movie. They're both great. And they both are great together, as we talked about in that scene at the diner. Mm-hmm. They're both great when they're in scenes together. I don't know if I can make a decision. This might have to be a co-one. They're Yeah. I from a from a musical standpoint, McCoy. But from an acting standpoint, Joe Anderson. Yeah. That's the thing. It's tough. It's like McCoy has the better songs. Anderson has the better moments. 
if that makes sense. Yeah. It's the it's the it's the she loves you yet yeah, all you need is love. It's the uh, hey Jude 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 when he's when he's coming into America again. It's even the kind of the uh, uh, the mirror shot in Hey Jude when they mm-hmm. see each other. Even and then just him being, his... him being the one that that like initiates the sliding on the the alley lanes on I've just yeah. seen a face like he's he's just yeah. fun he's fun to be around you get why he's kind of the glue that holds that group together and once he's gone everything kind of falls apart yeah, yeah that makes exactly. sense okay so co co Annie Potts X Factor supporting uh actors uh uh Martin Luther McCoy Joe Anderson shout out Joe Anderson should have done more stuff he's still out there. He's still grinding. Yeah. He was very good in uh, The Ballad of Lefty Brown, a very underrated A24 release. Oh, yeah. And I just got to shout out a TV show that I loved in high school. I mean, in college, after this movie, The River. Shout out The River. Shout out Joe Anderson. Shout out Bruce Greenwood. Shout out Katie Featherston. Solid yeah, she's cast. also in it. Gene Hackman MVP award. Who is the person that carries the movie? I have two things here. Okay. One is one is a cop out. All right. And that's the Beatles. The Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> See, no, I'm not going to give you that because this movie transforms okay. the Beatles. Okay. Then Julie Taymor. Julie Taymor. She is the one who transforms the Beatles. Incredible cast surrounding her. I mean, incredible cast and crew surrounding her. But yeah, it's her. It's her vision that makes it happen. And especially when you say kind of what all happened in the in the aftermath and the post-production how hard she fought to get this made the way she wanted to get it made and no matter how i feel or how we feel about it being flawed in elements or not liking certain elements is that it's still her vision and that's the stuff that should be kind of talked about it's mm-hmm. like it, it is fresh and new and is pushing the form of of, of movie musicals uh as well as film and so, pushing it in some way and it's I, I I'm always impressed when a filmmaker takes big swings. I, I almost am more impressed if you take a big swing and miss mm-hmm. than if you play everything safe. Yeah. Um. And I think she takes some big swings in this movie. Yep. I agree. As a as a filmmaker. Dear Prudence, won't you come out to play? Open up your eyes Dear Prudence See the sunny skies The wind is low The birds will sing That you are part of everything Dear Prudence Won't you Final questions. If you made this movie in the 1960s. No, wait. 
No, we changed we that. Twist didn't we twisted it. We, we I was like, that. I was like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's tricky. If you made, if you remade this movie today, who would you cast? Uh, yeah, we talked about '60s, and I was looking at, I was just like, I don't know if I can do this because it was just like, who's gonna play the Jimi Hendrix equivalent in the 1960s? Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> uh, who's gonna play Sadie, the the Janis Joplin uh, equivalent of in that period, Janis Joplin? Okay, so. I have all the main six. Okay. Who do you want first? Give me a give me a prudence. Okay. I have two people for here. Okay. Lana Condor. Okay. Nice. Or Olivia Rodrigo. Oh. She is Asian descent. Oh. Olivia Rodrigo. Yeah, I think I think those are both good picks. Already, that was, that they're, very, already there, your publicity issue is soft. Beef up that prudence roll a little bit. Olivia Rodrigo. Okay. Who do you want next? All right. Let's get Sadie. Okay. And again, we kind of do, I kind of do stars a lot of the time, but who's the equivalent of a Janis Joplin nowadays? And I went with Lady Gaga. Okay. Not Janis Joplin to- tone, but I think very similar backstories in terms of like, uh, like just like uh, misunderstood people in their day. I think Gaga is becoming more understood and is becoming more successful. Um, and has a much bigger following in her day but i think she's a great actress and i think i could see her like playing the bars in new york because that's what she did Mm -hmm. like i could see her doing that yeah so that's that's my sadie okay all right let's roll into jojo gary clark jr okay i dig that for sure and he's acted before he was in the honey dripper by john sales i think Mm -hmm. he's really good in it um i think he could easily do the acting the acting side and the musical side I, i'm trying to think like who is a great guitarist that i love that's like can be down and dirty but also just a a also a great singer too i think gary clark just has a great voice and in, in terms of the 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 style of the music another one i thought of not as kind of rocky in terms of that i thought of leon bridges mm-hmm. i really like leon bridges but i've never seen him act before yeah no i think gary clark jr would absolutely rock this role some of these these last three are the ones that, are, that were tough Okay, let's get our let's get our Maxwell. My pitch here, and I'm not married to it. Nick Holt. Okay, so so you didn't go with an American. I didn't, but it took me a while. I was like, screw, it, I'm going Nick Holt. All right, I like I like that. I like Nick Holt. Okay, he's got that kind of like, especially from back in his Skins days. He's got that kind of uh, yeah, mischievousness to him. Okay, now Lucy, I have three people down for this. Mm-hmm. We'll go with kind of the lesser known person. Uh, Haley Bennett. Okay. Yeah. Has sung before. Has, is a, I think a solid actress. Hasn't really had a huge break, but is a good singer uh, from music and lyrics with Hugh Grant and uh, Drew Barrymore. Uh, no, uh, and then also, I think, a really solid actress. So, Haley Bennett. Elle Fanning. Okay. Is my other one. And my third one, Haley Steinfeld. Ooh. Those are all solid choices. Thank um, you. Thank you. I personally, as a Haley Steinfeld fan, We'll go with her, but I, I really like Haley Bennett as the pick as well. Okay. Let's okay, let me let me tell you my Jude and you can decide okay. who you wanna who you wanna go with it. Cause I only have one and I was trying to find who's the hot like British guy right now. Come on. What, I know you, I know where you, this is going. Do you? <laughs> I don't know if you do. I have Tom Holland down. Oh for Jude. That's not what I was thinking. Okay. Who would you think it was gonna Harry be? Styles. Tom, I also thought Harry Styles, but I didn't want to say it just just to be that guy. But I also thought Harry Styles. 
either of those. Tom Holland, I don't know, can sing. That's the only thing. I don't know if Tom Holland can sing. I will say Harry Styles makes more sense. He, he can't act and he can't sing. He's great in Dunkirk for the parties in. Yeah. We're going with Styles. We're I think Styles we go Harry Styles. I, I do. I, uh, I, I the, love the Tom question is, Who do you think works on a dock in Liverpool at one point in his life? Honestly, I think, I think you could, I think, yeah, obviously Styles is like high fashion and whatnot, but I think you could. I think Styles could be, yeah. I think uh, Styles uh, uh, could also do dock worker better than, than, I agree. than Tom Holland could. So we're going with Styles as Jude. Out of the three Lucys, mm. Elle Fanning, Haley Steinfeld, Haley Bennett, who do you go with? I'm still going Steinfeld. Okay. Steinfeld Styles. We got Styles, Steinfeld, Nicholas Holt as Max, Lady Gaga as Sadie, Gary Clark Jr. as Jojo, and Olivia Rodrigo as Prudence. Let's do it. That movie's a box office success right Boom. there. I gotta say that. Can't beat it. That Julie Tamar. Can't beat it. I know you want to make the sequel, but would you be interested in <laughs> remaking <laughs> this? Remaking it with this cast. And it'll probably cost the same amount of money for it that you did for $70 million for that one. Yep. Just in cast, he's alone. What we got next? Uh, does this film fit into any other genres other than musical? I don't know. Like, I mean, th- there was like a brief period of time of like these like protest type movies, like mm-hmm. the wartime, like, like an anti-Vietnam, Viet- anti-Vietnam war movie type thing that was kind of happening. Like these kind of college campus movies that happened in the kind of seventies. So that's kind of a little small subgenre. I would probably throw it in there at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, again, it's like the basic stuff. It's a romance, I think with them. And I mean, New York movie. Yeah, you could say that. I was watching this time. I was like, there is like they do kind of show off New York, like when like when like uh, Jude and Jojo are like stumbling through New York after while my guitar while they're singing like my, while my while my guitar gently weeps. Like that's all kind of there. It's them living in Greenwich Village and kind of just like living that kind of world. So and I think New York movies may not be a genre. But they are it is a specific like gr- collective of movies that take place in New York. Mm-hmm. So finally, how does this movie fit within the musical genre? Well, I consider it a jukebox musical, <laughs> uh, even though Julie Tamer might not. And I understand. I understand that. But I, I, I think I think it's I think sometimes jukebox musicals can get that negative um uh kind of connotation to it because like, oh, it's just singing the pop songs. They don't mean anything. But I think. Mm-hmm this one does it's like i know we i mean you love tommy would you consider tommy a jukebox musical or would you not consider it a jukebox musical or would it just be uh, a musical? tommy tommy is a rock opera it was written okay fair to be fair. one piece of music yeah i take my well <laughs> moulin rouge is that a jukebox yes, musical i do think i do think of moulin rouge as almost like the definition of a jukebox musical because it is literally just like you hit you hit shuffle on a jukebox and just like made a built a musical around the songs that that popped up. And I think this is more character driven. I do agree with her on that, but I I think you can have a character driven jukebox musical. Cause I think a musical should be character driven like as itself. Mm -hmm. I think you need to have songs that, that are the inner monologue or outer monologue of a character. And I think this does that. Like I, I remember bad example of a jukebox musical is rock of ages, the movie, which I saw, I think opening weekend, uh, and like majority of those songs don't feel like they're coming from like the inner thoughts of a character, except mm-hmm. Tom Cruise's because shout out Tom Cruise. Um, uh, one that are alive on the rock of ages soundtrack, <laughs> but yeah, most of them just like, they just, they're just like they're pop filler. And I, but I think you can make a jukebox musical with, with feeling to it, with emotion to it. I think this does that. Yeah. Um, 
I, I think it's definitely in that that weird period of, of musicals where we didn't know what the genre was. It's the post Chicago pre La La Land type era. That's that's kind of the defining points. If you look at it, it's the Chicago La La Land. And that's the like going to the wilderness of musicals in that period of just like nine across the universe, <laughs> Sweeney Todd, like uh, all this stuff's just kind of happening and there's no real kind of set thing. And I think now post La La Land, we're getting a more like we're making a true movie musical in this type of like realm or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's also beginning to evolve. I know like recently, I think they're like a musical open at can the am Dri- the one that am drivers in mm-hmm. um, like there's a lot of stuff happening right now with the musical genre. But I think it's in that, that kind of lost period that should probably be discussed more. And I think we're kind of doing this this month on the show. Um, Cause it's the stuff we kind of grew up with at that point. So yeah, I think it fits in that kind of lost in the wilderness era of musical genre and people like it's, it's for the millennials, man. <laughs> millennials love it. Is that it? Is that's that on, that's on, across the universe. Some people were wanting to make sure we defended it. I think we did to some extent. I know I, yeah. we, I tore it down a little bit. I think we're in the middle. I think it's, I think that's the kind of movie it is. And there's some really great, really some high points and some low points. Yep. It's film. So that's all we have for you on this episode on Across the Universe. Uh, next week, we're doing Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barbara Fleet Street from also 2007. I didn't realize that now that I say that. <laughs> um, and we'll have a guest on for that one. But make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast on our podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. Yeah, guys. Uh, you know, any feedback you can give us. We'd love to hear it. And obviously, like I said, if you've got the perfect cast for my <laughs> unrealized Across the Universe sequel, let's let's go. Let's do it. Let's make this happen. I'll put a Kickstarter up. We'll do it. Yeah, let's, we'll, we'll talk do to it. the we'll people. We'll talk to Paul. Are we doing t- table reads, live table reads over <laughs> Zoom anymore? Is that passe at this point? No, no, no. Yeah, we got, we got to do it in person. Just separate everybody. Um, and yeah, if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, Thomas, as always, thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for thanks for watching Across the Universe yeah. again. You tell me to watch it, I'll watch it. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.